The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Today on Science for the People, we'll be looking at the practice of mandatory vaccinations. What do you do when your best efforts at public health education aren't enough? Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell. And let me introduce today's panelists. Barry R. Bloom is Harvard University's Distinguished Service Professor of the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases and former Dean of the Harvard School of Public Health. Welcome, Barry. Thank you. Dr. Paul A. Offit is a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases and the Maurice R. Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's written six books, one of which is Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All. Hello again, Paul. Hi. And Alison Thompson is Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Lee Dan Faculty of Pharmacy. She's a public health ethicist who specializes in infectious disease and vaccine ethics. Thanks for being here, Alison. Thanks, Desiree. And Nick Little is the Center for Inquiry's Vice President and General Counsel. He oversees the Center's litigation with a dual focus on protecting the separation of church and state (coughs) and seeking to ensure that science, not pseudoscience or invented facts, are used to justify public policy. Good to have you here, Nick. Thank you. So what we won't be talking about today is whether vaccines themselves are a good thing. We have already established that through years and years of research that vaccines are effective and safe, although as with any other medical intervention, they are not completely risk-free, but they almost certainly don't cause autism. So does anyone here disagree with any of those statements? Not at all. Nope. Nope. Perfect. So what I do want to talk about today is why we're having such a problem communicating those facts to people and some of the ways that different organizations and governments are taking on vaccinations. So uh, I understand that vaccination rates are decreasing, correct? It is, Paul. I, I would say um, not really. If, if you look at, at the, the most recent uh, national immunization surveys, the percentage of p- people who get vaccinated is pretty high. I mean, we're sort of in the high 80, low 90 percent range. If you look at people who are choosing to um, not get any vaccines, it's between one and two percent, which has been fairly steady. I, I think what may be increasing is those who are choosing to delay or separate or space out or withhold vaccines. That 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 could be as high as 10 or 20 percent. I think the real problem is that there are pockets of people who are choosing, um, you know, who are making that choice, which is set up for outbreaks like the most recent outbreak that started in Disney. So now, why then are people choosing to uh, to space that out or to to delay vaccinations? There appear to be lots of reasons, and um, some articulated by parents <coughs> that we sometimes term as hesitant, uh, for good reasons and sometimes not good reasons. But I would say the overarching reason, at least in my view, is that we don't see the consequences of the diseases that we are vaccinating against, which is the result of our success at eliminating most of these diseases, uh, such that people don't see the terrible consequences, even from things that are deemed as likely to be harmless, like measles and mumps and whooping cough, which by no means are harmless. So that's a principal reason, not only for parents and patients, but also physicians who haven't seen 
much of polio or the adverse consequences of these diseases. There are, of course, many other reasons, um, one of which is clearly lots of shots go into kids' arms, kids cry, since they don't see any other problems in the community. Um, why put my kid in uh, any risk for this? Because there's no problem that I see. And of course, there's no problem until, as Paul said, a community has an outbreak. And most of the people in these outbreaks, which have been the worst in 20 years for um, measles and whooping cough, and in one case, mumps, uh, are people who have not been vaccinated or fully vaccinated. I think it's a really uh, complicated issue, and the research that I've been engaged with and that I've conducted suggests that um, that that's absolutely true, that the, the fact that we're not seeing a lot of these diseases is sort of removing the compelling evidence that it's it's uh, necessary to, to vaccinate our kids. But I also think that the issue of trust is really central to this discussion, too. And I think we tend to think about people having a bad relationship perhaps with their provider and that at that level there's some kind of trust breakdown but I think it's it's actually much more complicated than that there's um, trust in the science itself there's a uh, lack of trust in big pharma and you know the more scandals that sort of make it into the media around pharmaceutical companies not being honest with their data the more that erodes any trust that was left there so I think that how science is taken up by various publics is really dependent on who's who's providing the information, um, how much people trust those people. And so um, I'd like to suggest that, it, you know, that the science itself may be very compelling, but that it's how it gets taken up is definitely contextually and socially mediated. Exactly. And so that's what I'm wondering. Like, there has been research into the best ways to communicate around public health, right, and specifically around vaccines. Yeah, I think there's a lot of research around that. But I think that a lot of it tends to use what we call in sociology the deficit model of the public understanding of science, where we think if people just had the right facts, that they would do what we want them to do. And it's definitely more complicated than that, you know, that that people don't just assimilate or experience science as separate from other elements of knowledge or their judge, own judgment or the advice that they're getting from their community. So then what is the best way to communicate around these issues? Now, this is Barry. Um, my sense, having run a meeting at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences on precisely that question, is that we, and the pediatric profession in general, does not really know what the best way to do it is and whether there have to be different ways for different sets of parents. There have been a small number of very detailed studies within physicians' practices of how the physician, but most often not the physician, but the person who actually delivers the injection, which may be a nurse or a nurse practitioner, and there are different views. One is to be open and asking whether parents have concerns and then address those concerns or even acknowledge and then address them. Um, and in a study in the state of Washington, it turns out that was much less good than the physicians saying pretty firmly that I think it's time to vaccinate your child. Now, that may not work everywhere. And I think the conclusion we drew was 
We don't know the best way to teach physicians how to do that, to teach their physicians' assistants and nurses how to do that. Um, and we need uh, to learn a lot more about why people are hesitant and what would persuade them in uh, an intelligent way uh, to be less so. Yeah, and this is Paul. I, I completely agree with Barry. I think there is sort of no single best way. It really depends on the population you're dealing with. But I think one thing we're up against is um, is sort of a lack of passion by the people who are doing the recommending, many of whom also are young, also not only don't see these diseases today, but didn't grow up with these diseases, and, and frankly are trained to, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, to make sure that they have a healthy respect for all attitudes and beliefs, including this one. You know, the notion that, you know, maybe it's better not to get a vaccine than get one. And so, you know, so we tend to sort of stand back. I, I think it's, it's okay to be passionate. It's okay to be prescriptive and to say, look, let me love your child. Um, you know, don't put me in a position where I'm being asked to send this child out into a world that's becoming progressively more dangerous, more measles, more mumps, more whooping cough. Um, this is the best thing for you to do. And we have trouble being that, uh, Definitive, I think, especially the young, the young, younger physicians. So they're just not being pushy enough, or they don't really buy into the idea that vaccines are as important as they are. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say pushy. I, I think what they're not is as prescriptive. In other words, so for example, when when uh, I think what, where the HPV vaccine, the human papillomavirus vaccine, suffers is the doctor walks into the into the office for the eleven to thirteen year old visit and says, you know, today you're supposed to get the the Tdap vaccine. You're supposed to get the meningococcal vaccine, and we also have the HPV vaccine if you like. So I think they they sort of the physicians or clinicians can stand back and and also they they just have trouble because the notion is if you're really going to get people to buy into using a particular uh, medical product like a vaccine you want them to sort of share in the decision the degree to which they sh- if you if if that's your stance then you have to be willing to stand back and you have to at some level be willing to watch them make a bad decision which can be bad for their child and it's um it's a difficult paradigm i think because i think in the world of vaccines it's okay to be i, I wouldn't use the word pushy i would use the word clear that you know that this is this is the the, this is uh your job as a parent is to put your child in the safest position possible that's what vaccines do i would suggest to you that for the people who are hesitant this is a decision point for them you know so before they even get to the doctor's office you know we're talking about that the upper middle class middle class group of um, parents who do a lot of research they're very well informed whether they take up the science or not is one thing but they, they do a lot of research. It's the people who, this is a routinized part of that visit. They come in, you know, and the doctor says, okay, it's time for your shots. That's not a decision point for those people, and they're the ones who are going to get the, the shots. It's the ones who are hesitant. They've already come into the office on the fence. So, um, And with a lot of questions, and the research that I've done suggests that the people who are doing the immunizing can't tell them what's in the needle, um, and that for them... Is, is a huge problem. They can't get the information from the providers that, that they want to, to help them make that decision. See, see I, I would actually disagree with that to some extent, I, at least in terms of how I would define the word informed. I think when people say that they've, they've say, done their research for, you know, for whether their child should get a chickenpox vaccine as an example, what they mean is that they've looked on the internet and read other people's opinions about that vaccine. I mean, that's really not being informed about the the, the decision to get the vaccine, because frankly, if you're choosing in this particular example not to get a chickenpox vaccine and there's no medical contraindication for getting the vaccine, then you've made a bad choice. So so I think, you know, what, what I mean by informed, for example, if we stick 
with the chickenpox story um, would be you should read the roughly 300 papers on chickenpox vaccine that are out there, which means that you would have to have some working knowledge of, you know, virology and immunology and statistics and epidemiology, which I think, frankly, few parents have. And quite honestly, I think few doctors have. So, so what do we do? We sort of turn to our experts, if you will, who at least collectively have read those papers and made those kinds of decisions. Experts like at the Advisory uh, Committee for Immunization Practices or the Committee of Infectious Diseases of the American Academy of Pediatrics. But that's just not a message that's ever going to sell. You know, trust us, we're experts. Uh, you know, we, we, we're doing what we think is best for, for children. But I, I you know, get being informed or quote unquote being fully informed is is just not the case. I think when when I sort of find myself talking to parents who are who are making a choice not to get a vaccine, I think this is an area in which the law can actually have an impact on people's attitudes on this. And um, at the moment, it strikes me that that parents are seeing this as a choice. It's two sides of a coin. It's vaccinate or not. And the way the law is structured and um, can define societal expectations on it. And if, par- if it is expected that parents vaccinate, parents are going to vaccinate more. Um, whereas if, if it's expected that this is, you know, sort of it's a choice I have when I walk in, um, you'll see more parents make that choice not to vaccinate their children. You're listening to Science for the People, and we've been talking about mandatory vaccinations. We'll be back with more of that after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Science for the People, and today I have a lovely panel of folks with me. Uh, Paul Offit, Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Pennsylvania. Allison Thompson, Public Health Ethicist. Nick Little is the Vice President and General Counsel at the Center for Inquiry. And Barry R. Bloom is in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at Harvard. And we are talking about vaccination, education, and practice. Now, Nick, you provided me with a lovely segue. Um, so <laughs> we're trying to educate folks. Obviously, we're trying to educate them in the best, uh, most effective ways possible. Uh, but in the meantime, people are still contracting vaccine preventable diseases. And, and some of those diseases kill people or, or leave them with a disability. So the other option that we have, if we can't uh, get people to the point through education, um, is through compulsory vaccinations. And so just to define our terms here, when I say compulsory, I mean some kind of public service is withheld if there's no proof of vaccination. So where are there compulsory vaccination programs in place? You know, if I could just uh, redefine things a little bit, mm-hmm. at least, and Nick probably knows this story much better than me, but... But I guess I would distinguish mandatory vaccination from compulsory vaccination. Mandatory vaccination is you were asked to get a vaccine. If you, if you don't get a vaccine, then you'll pay some sort of societal price, whether it's you don't get to work, go to the school you, you want to go to, or you don't get to go to the uh, work at the hospital you want to work at. Compulsory vaccination uh, is you are vaccinated whether you want to be vaccinated or not, or you're, you're vaccinated whether your parent wants you to be vaccinated or not. Um, that in the military, military has compulsory vaccination, but you don't have to join the military. To my knowledge, and, and Nick, correct me, 
on this. The, the only example I can think of of compulsory vaccination in this country happened in Philadelphia in 1991 with our measles outbreak, which was a measles outbreak that involved 1,400 people in our city and nine children died. There was that, that, that uh, outbreak centered on two fundamentalist churches, both of whom refused vaccination and, frankly, medical care for their children. We got to the point of compulsory vaccination, which is to say we vaccinated the children in those two uh, churches independent of whether their parents wanted them to be or not even though, frankly, there was a religious exemption to vaccination on the books for 10 years. So, so that, to me, is compulsory vaccination. I believe that is correct. I don't know of another situation that has moved into compulsory vaccination in, in, to that extent of basically, you know, your arm is held out and a needle is put into it, you know, regardless of, of anyone's opinion. I mean, and that's so something is- that, that just isn't on the cards at, at any point. Um, we're not going to see a move towards the compulsory, but certainly there's been talk about the mandatory, yes. The origins of the mandatory in the U.S., to my knowledge, is a 1904 case that I teach uh, called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which is very, very interesting yes. and basically defines the fact that within the Constitution, there are no circumstances where each person at all times and in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint and that it is within the framework of the Constitution uh, to protect the public's interest in the public's health and welfare. And on that basis, Mr. Jacobson uh, was not exempted from the smallpox vaccination, which was devastating the country in 1904. So jump in slightly on that. That's a, there's a, shall I call it a quirk of American law um, there, that this was a Supreme Court decision, uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, where the court, correct, um, as you say, um, and quite correctly turned around and said that there is no mandatory, re- mandatory vaccination, and, and it was the smallpox vaccination, does not violate the United States Constitution. However... Because of the federal system, what's also clear is that the federal government, with the exemption of, as people have (laughs) talked about, the United States military, for example, the federal government has no authority to mandate vaccination across the country. This is a decision that's done by the states. Absolutely right. And it's done under the state police powers. Now, of course, with infectious diseases, that has a very major impact because if, for example, Missouri decides it doesn't require vaccination and Illinois does require vaccination and and you've got a long long border between the two, then the the protection in Illinois is obviously limited by the non-vaccination in Missouri. But states have moved um, towards this. And if we look at the history, Massachusetts was, was a leader in this. In fact, Massachusetts has required had the first mandatory vaccination law, which was for smallpox, in 1809, um, so 206 years ago, spread across the country. And, and because vaccination has, is a childhood thing in the vast majority of cases, states have tended to focus on, on school-aged children and tied in vaccination requirements with the ability to attend schools. Again, not surprising because also attending schools is one of the main sources of transmission of these diseases. So by 1963, 20 states required vaccinations for school entry. By 1970, that was up to 29. And by 1980, all 50 states require 
vaccination for attendance at school. And that leads us to a discussion <laughs> of personal and re religious exemptions. Exactly. Which then reduces the power of those laws. Yeah, it's what well, I mean, all 50 states have this requirement. However, how it affects homeschooled children is, is obviously a different situation. But in all 50 states, they accept certain forms of exemptions to that. You can exempt out in ways. Now, there are three main types of exemptions. The first exemption is medical, whereas it's a, it's a child who cannot receive the vaccine for sound medical reasons. And all 50 states allow that. In fact, in the case we mentioned earlier, uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts back in the early 20th century, the Supreme Court said that you had to grant medical exemptions. So all 50 states have those medical exemptions. The two that worry us are the religious exemptions and the philosophical exemptions. And currently, 47 states allow a religious exemption to the vaccination requirement. Um, and the three states that don't are California, which just eliminated it, causing a large amount of uproar, and Mississippi and West Virginia. And Mississippi and West Virginia are two of the states that have seen the impact of infectious diseases the most, and so, uh, so moved to to stop the exemptions. The philosophical exemptions, which it, it, it simply, it's, I don't believe in vaccination for a personal reason that isn't linked to religion, are much more limited. Those are limited to 18 states. I believe that may have been reduced to 17 because California, um, California has taken away its philosophical as well as its religious exemptions. Well, what's the process for requesting a religious exemption? Do you have to prove it? That's that's actually a very difficult question to answer because if there are 50 states and within each state there are different school districts. Uh, let me give you an example of it. Uh, in Virginia, for example, where I live, Virginia has a religious exemption but not a philosophical exemption. And when you take your child to school or to enroll your child in school, you're given a form that your doctor fills in with my child has had the diphtheria vaccine. My child has had the measles vaccine. There is a section below it that you can sign which simply says these vaccinations are against my personal religious beliefs. Some states require you to fill in a section which turns around and, and says, in my words, these are the reasons that vaccines oppose my religious beliefs. How that's looked at it, it just varies massively, but I, I can tell you that in the overwhelming majority of situations, any exemption requested is granted for. There was a survey done in the year 2000 that found that in only 21 states had an exemption request ever been denied. So I, I guess my question is, if uh, mandatory vaccination was implemented, does conscience trump legislation according does to the Constitution? No. Uh, my understanding is that from the Massachusetts case and from a case called Schneck versus the United States in 1919, Oliver Wendell Holmes indicated you can't set a, a fire in a theater whether you want to or not because it threatens the the public health and welfare of the population, which is an overriding uh, concern, overriding in that case, those cases, individual liberties. It's a restraint on the ability of people to do whatever they want. 
Right. Um, and there's a very important case again out of Massachusetts in 1944, uh, Prince versus Massachusetts, which was a child labor case. A Jehovah's Witness woman was taken to court because she brought her, I believe, nine-year-old daughter with her to distribute pamphlets. And the court turned around and made the very important comment that the right to practice religion freely does not include the right to expose the community or the child to communicable diseases or the latter to ill health or death. So the courts have been very clear that there isn't this constitutional right to ignore vaccination laws. The vaccination laws are on the one hand within the powers of the states, and on the other hand, you don't have to allow under the constitution an exemption based on religion. Unfortunately, because we're talking about the law here, uh, nothing is quite that clear because states also have been found to have the power to give religious exemptions if they want to. So they're not com states don't have to provide a religious exemption, but they're allowed to. You know, the, the one, my favorite line that's ruling in 1944 was, you know, while you were at liberty to martyr yourself to your religion, mm -hmm. you're not at liberty to martyr your child to your religion. Well, I think that there's a very important distinction that can be drawn there, and it's something the anti-vaccination people gloss over. If you hear people talk, they always say, I have the right not to vaccinate my child. And what's important and what we need to look at is that this is the child's rights that are at stake and the community's rights. We may let the parent be the custodian of the right of the child to choose whether to be vaccinated. But it's not a parent's right to decide to put their child in danger. It's that child's right that we need to be considering. And the child's right to be vaccinated or not be vaccinated is the important one. Okay, so compulsory vaccination, or sorry, I should say mandatory vaccination, is legal. Good. But what is generally the public response to, uh, to these kind of implementations? Well, I think I think it's Paul. I think I think you know most people accept vaccines. Most people see vaccines as a good thing. Most people walk into the office and say, "What vaccines am I supposed to get today?" I think that those who oppose vaccines violently oppose vaccines, and this are the mouse that roared in many ways. I think they're they they don't represent most parents. They frankly don't even represent most parents of children with autism. Yet yet that's who we hear about. I think they are disproportionately represented um, on the internet. I think they're disproportionately represented in terms of uh, getting Congress's ear. So it, it's it's hard to know when, when you say most people, it's, it's hard to know because we sort of, in some ways, I think that that voice, the voice of the anti-vaccine person, in some way drowns out the voices of, of most parents who don't feel that way. Well, if you look at California, uh they had a huge protest at the Capitol um, against the, the bill. And the topic drew such acidic debate that they actually had to add extra security for the authors of the bill. Although what's interesting about the California story, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting natural experiment to see what happens now. So, so California now becomes, as Nick said, the third state to have only medical exemptions to vaccination. So what will happen now? I mean, really, if you're, if you're, if you're in California, you want to send your child to a California school, they've got to be vaccinated unless there's a medical contraindication. So, so what's going to happen? Either one, 
um, more children will get vaccinated, which is, I think, is what's going to happen. The second possibility is that you'll start to see people more interested in homeschooling their children, which would be phenomenally dangerous because now you're talking about children who probably aren't vaccinated at all that are gathering together as, as a group. Or the third, and this would be the most egregious and hopefully doesn't happen, is that you'll they'll be able to find physicians who are willing to sort of provide a quote-unquote medical contraindication letter when there really isn't a medical contraindication. I mean, I hope that doesn't happen. But um, what was interesting about the way this played out on, on I guess, at, uh, at the state house there is that, that you know, that obviously they were very angry, this, this what I consider to be small group of anti-vaccine people. And then they, they had a chance if they could get a several hundred thousand signatures to basically bring this back to a referendum and they couldn't get the signatures. So I think what they found out was they're not quite as popular as they thought they were in California. Definitely. Um, it, um, last week when that happened, when they failed to get the signatures, I mean, that was a huge step for public health. That we realize that this isn't, you know, a matter of, it's not something that should be up for referendum on this. That this is a matter of public safety. Um, it, it, there are certainly are, and states vary on this, uh, on who can sign your medical exemption form. Worryingly, there are states that allow chiropractors, that allow alternative healthcare providers to sign a medical exemption form. And, and that can certainly undercut any kind of mandatory vaccine. If you can go to your homeopathic uh, provider, for example, or your, your crystal um, healer, and have them sign your form, then I think you're far more likely to see the medical exemptions rise. If we maintain it to healthcare professionals, then you're, you're less likely to see that. Uh, there's a, another worrying circumstance. Um, there are some physicians, I uh, was told by the chairman of pediatrics in um, St. Louis, where some physicians feel that they, in conscience, cannot take responsibility for the lives of children in their practice if those children are not uh, able or allowed to have vaccines. And that has given rise to a small number of physicians who essentially advertise that they don't give vaccines to take care of those families. Uh, that's a worrying uh, way of bypassing the general best practices of medicine. In the research that I've done, which, you know, it's, we're not talking about a lot of, of people that I've spoken to, but um, it was definitely the case that the people who um, had concerns about vaccines and didn't want to vaccinate their kids would actually seek out providers that were going to accommodate that point of view so that they didn't have to get harassed every time they went into the office. So I think they do shop around for, for physicians who are going to be um, sympathetic to their point of view. You're listening to Science for the People, and we've been talking about mandatory vaccinations. We'll be back with more of that after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell. 
Today's episode is all about vaccinations, how to most effectively communicate their safety and effectiveness, and what the options are when that doesn't work. My panelists are Allison Thompson, public health ethicist, Barry R. Bloom in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at Harvard, Nick Little is the Vice President and General Counsel at the Center for Inquiry, and Paul Offit, Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Pennsylvania. So let's talk efficacy, first of all. Have vaccination rates increased in the places that have introduced mandatory vaccinations? I only know well, that it's been effective in the context of um, making it mandatory for healthcare workers to be vaccinated, and that, and that pretty clearly shows that it does work, but I'm not sure about in the public. Yeah, this is Paul. If, if, if the CDC in the early 1980s um, launched what they considered to be their measles elimination program, you know, we'd gone from 3 million cases a year to around 27,000 cases a year um, by the early 1980s. So they launched their measles elimination program, which really the centerpiece of which was mandatory measles vaccination for school entry. So, so the, the, and this was, there are many different sort of case studies of this in cities like Los Angeles and others. It clearly increased immunization rates, uh, and it clearly decreased the, the, uh, the likelihood of, of catching or spreading this particularly highly contagious infection. So yes, mandatory vaccination certainly worked in the, in the early eighties. And that really, that's where the school uh, mandate really took off was with that measles elimination program in the early eighties. Okay, and the reason I wanted to mention that is so mandatory vaccinations are legal and they are effective, but are they ethical? And this is a conversation that I've seen many, many people have over the years. I'm, I, I mean, the question really is, which is more important, the health of the group or the freedom of the individual, is it not? I think that that's definitely um, one way to frame it, you know, that that um, in the service of the public good, that we can ask people to limit their liberties um, to promote to, to promote that as, as long as certain conditions are met. But there's another way to frame it, too, in the, and that goes back to the previous conversation around rights and, you know, to frame it slightly differently away from a rights-based conversation. You know, it, it's really a tension between parental autonomy and the best interests of the child, as I see it. Right. I, I agree with that. I mean, if you watch the Republican national debates, um, the second debate, and I don't recommend this, but um, if you, you happen to watch this, I mean, at the end of that um, that debate, the, the last 15 minutes or so, or there was a 15-minute segment where they talked about vaccines. It was painful. But to me, the most painful person was Rand Paul. I mean, he he made it a freedom issue. And, and as was said earlier, freedom for who? Uh, you know, it, it's he says, you know, the government doesn't own your children. You own your children. Well, you actually don't own your children. I mean, you can argue you own your car. But when you have children, you have a certain responsibility. Uh, he, sh- he should, you know, he should finish his sentence. Um, it should be... You your right to choose whether or not your child catches and, and transmits a potentially fatal infection. Right. It's not a decision that's only made for that child. So it's, it's the rights of the child, as we said earlier, and it's also the rights of those who come in contact with the child, which is to say society's rights. It's not just we, a parent's choice issue. We fully accept in society, and we have always accepted in society, that there are limits on the decisions you can make for your children. You can't send children to work in textile mills or work down coal mines. Children can't run around with a loaded gun in their pocket. Does that infringe on the freedom of the child and the freedom of the parent to send his child to work, to send her child around with a gun? Absolutely it does, but, th- but there's no question that we're allowed to make those restrictions. 
And it's very important that we portray this in that way, that we are talking about the freedoms of the child, the, the rights of the child to be free from disease and to be free from infecting other children with it, rather than some completely invented freedom of a parent to subject the child to these things. I think the, the thing that's a hard sell here is that in most cases, childhood vaccines are given to healthy children who are really not going to benefit very greatly personally. You know, it, it really is the, the benefit here. Um, is really to the community. And so that can be a hard sell for parents, right? They they have their what they think of as their child's best interest at heart. And so if there's something that could expose them to some risk um, and they see it as being solely for the benefit of the community, then, then that's where they get their concerns from, I think. But I think it's more difficult because you know, as we said earlier, these diseases aren't circulating. So it, it does appear to be a rational choice for them to say no, because they really, their their children, as they see it, really aren't at risk. Um, and so you're asking them to do something for the benefit of the community. And, and I think for some people, that's very tough to do. Yeah, Allison, I agree with that, except, except it, it does benefit the child. I mean, when, you, and well, when sure. you talk to these, these parent advocacy groups, whether it's Families Fighting Flu or Meningitis Angels or National Meningitis Association, they all say the same thing. I, I can't believe this happened to my child. I can't believe that my child suffered or died from this infection. And so they, they become vigorous activists to, to talk to the public about the importance of the disease or the burden of the disease and, and the importance of the vaccine. Um, it's, it's, it's a game of Russian roulette we play where it's not five empty chambers, maybe it's 100,000 empty chambers, but we still put a gun to people's head unnecessarily. Sure. And I think the thing is, too, to distinguish between different vaccines. Like, I think, I think, I think people who are trying to make these decisions for their kids and they are hesitant, um, you know, we tend to refer to them as vaccine hesitant or anti-vaccine, but they actually do consider which, um, which vaccines they think their kids should have. So some pretty much everyone I've ever talked to, all they all want the tetanus shot for their kid and they're upset that it's bundled with those other two shots. And so um and it really has to do with their sense of uh risk perception around how likely their kid is to need that vaccine. You know, and, and what's interesting, because to bring back to the Republican national debate, um, it, it's, you know, and that's what Ben Carson said. I mean, Ben Carson said, you know, I think that, you know, we should only give vaccines to prevent those diseases that cause, you know, permanent disability or death. Well, that's all of them. That's every single vaccine. I mean, and, you know, mm-hmm. when you say, you know, when you say that people just want the tetanus vaccine and then they don't want the, the pertussis or whooping cough component of that vaccine. I mean, whooping cough. You know, it certainly kills more children every year than tetanus does. I mean, it kills roughly 20 to 25 kids, and we have tens of thousands of cases of, of whooping cough every year. That dwarfs the number of cases of tetanus we have. So you're right. It's perception but not reality. Now, one thing that we haven't touched on is – Okay, so this is this is ethical, definitely, if you consider the health of society over this issue of personal freedom, and definitely you've, you have explained. But let's talk about perception, because could the perception of the loss of personal freedom in this area have unintended consequences in other areas? Now, this is already being used as an example of government overreach uh, by the folks who would use that, and that's outside of the conspiracy theory that there's that there's something nefarious about vaccines to begin with. Sure. I think the issue here is that the, you know, the kind of force that the government wants to to put behind that kind of um, legislation, you know, to make something mandatory or compulsory has to be proportionate to the harm that you're trying to mitigate, right? So 
you know, as we were saying earlier, it would be really hard to imagine a scenario where it would be compulsory unless there was some kind of catastrophic public health emergency like bioterrorism or something like that. Um, but I think the damage that those kinds of coercive measures can do to the public's trust um, needs to be considered. So, you know, there are, are people who have worked in this area looking at, you know, what are some of the ethical principles that collective vaccination programs need to abide by? And a, lar a large number of those are aimed at preserving or creating and fostering public trust in these kinds of programs. And and I could uh, comment on, on that. There is distrust at multiple levels of people feeling they're being told what to do by government, by experts, by scientists. And there are two considerations that I think the public doesn't always appreciate. One is how quickly infectious diseases can spread. And a classic case was that in in 2007, the whole country of France reported only 40 cases of measles. Four years later, there were 15,000 cases of measles and six deaths. So protection of everybody who says they, they don't see there's a great threat to their kid really depends on all the kids or 90-some percent of kids getting their vaccines. When you get much below that, then there is the possibility of very, very big outbreaks. And we don't see those because vaccines largely work. But were we to get below that level, this could be a major threat. The other area of um, distrust, if you will, is that this is being promoted by greedy vaccine and pharmaceutical companies uh, that are in cahoots with government requiring people to buy their products. And uh, the only thing I would say in respect of that is, A, this is not nearly as a f big a moneymaker for companies than drugs, particularly drugs for chronic diseases. You don't take vaccines every day of your life where you would if you were taking a statin for heart disease. But secondly, the scrutiny, the difficulty, the years it takes to get FDA approval for safety and effectiveness uh, means they're not perfect, they're not without adverse effects, but the adverse effects for most of the common vaccines have to be on the order of less than one in a million before they're approved. So all I would suggest is tr that there needs to be more trust that the scientific and medical and the FDA are doing their best to be sure that adverse effects don't happen to very many kids. And I think, I think it's interesting that we have spent a lot of time researching the public around this issue, you know, like, you know, how do they place their trust? What would make them trust us more? And, you know, what's the relationship between the amount of information they have in trust? There's some really interesting um, sociology literature out there that shows that the more people know about controversial technologies, the less supportive they are, which is actually the inverse of what most people would think, you know, that the more information you give people, the less likely they are to be supportive of, of whatever it is you're talking about, vaccines, biotechnology, what have you. So that, I mean, that's really really interesting but I think we really need to start 
asking ourselves what would make regulation around these things appear more trustworthy or be more trustworthy, right. what would make public health more trustworthy. And we don't tend to be very reflexive about those those kinds of things um, as people who work in public health. And I think there is a, a really strong um, temptation to just shut down any kind of dialogue with the anti-vaccination movement. And it's, you know, we just say, this is a lunatic fringe, we're not going to engage with them. Um, but there is, so there is a very hardcore sort of anti-vaccination movement out there, which is probably actually quite small, as we were saying earlier. Um, but there is a lot more people in the middle who are just sort of hesitant and questioning, and um, they really point to trust as being the major issue. And so what can we do to sort of turn that research around and say, what do these people need to um, to see happening in public health, in the regulation of these things, um, to make it appear more trustworthy or so people can actually place their trust in in the science, in the people who are communicating these things in government. And I was going to say, I think that's a really, really important point, because I know a lot of people who are uh, the furthest thing from anti-vaxxers, and they are very pro-science, and they are extremely uncomfortable with the idea of government-mandated vaccinations. So I think that's important. Part of the trouble with that as well, though, is is about approaching the anti-vax people and, and creating this this idea of trust. Is, is the well poisoning that goes on. For example, the responsible thing for the science community to do if a vaccine has a 1 in 10 million chance of an adverse reaction is to admit that there's a 1 in 10 million chance of it. And then you go to every anti-vax website, every natural news or whatever the next day, and you'll see FDA admits virus kills. And I'm not sure how in that situation you can you can develop the trust in that situation. Right. It, it, this is Paul. I, I think, first of all, it, it's it, as it turns out, you don't have to trust pharmaceutical companies. I mean, there, there exists for vaccines, not only the vaccine adverse events reporting system, but the vaccine safety data link. So very quickly when vaccines are rolled out. You know, you have this linked sort of computerized health maintenance organization record uh, system whereby you'll know who's gotten vaccines and who hasn't. And if there's a problem with the vaccine, it'll be it'll come up very quickly. There is no hiding. I mean, first of all, ethics aside, it's not very good business for companies to make vaccines that hurt children. And and, and they're not going to be able to hide from it because very quickly the vaccine safety data link will pick it up. Now, you could argue we, we're not good about this. We're not good about letting people know. What, what sort of systems are out there to protect their children? Uh, I, I certainly agree with that, but, but, but that, that one has to trust, um, groups like the pharmaceutical industry is the fact that you don't have to trust them. Or at least the regulatory authorities representing the public interest that, uh, do their very best, um, to see that nothing as, uh, vaccines go through much greater stringency than drugs. Drugs are used to treat people who are sick, whose lives are, you know, at huge risk. Whereas vaccines go into healthy children and no one can justify injuring a healthy child um, uh, with anything but the greatest constraints on that danger. Which is why, and that's a great point, which is why they are held to the highest standard of safety. I mean, if you look, I'm, uh, you, uh, um, uh, some of you on the phone may know this, but I'm, I'm the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech. So, I mean, we, 
you know, worked. We created those strains in our laboratory by the late 1980s. Then we sort of got the opportunity to watch what the research and development meant. And what it meant was, you know, it ultimately ended in a phase three prospective placebo controlled 72,000 person, 11 country, four year, $350 million trial. That was a single trial, a phase three trial for the purpose of licensure. I mean, 72,000 children. You know, when you look at drugs, drugs are often tested in sometimes hundreds, sometimes as many as thousands of people, but 70,000 children for, you know, for a single phase three trial, that never happens. And, and the reason is, is because we're trying to rule out even rare adverse events pre-licensure, which is a, an extraordinarily high bar. Now, that sounds very impressive to uh, those of us who care about science, but is that kind of information going to have an impact at all on um, just, I guess, the normal average parent? See, I think the normal parent doesn't understand risk. I think what Nick said before is exactly right. If you tell people that, that there's a, an adverse event that occurs in one in 10 people, I think they do not distinguish that from one in 15 million people. I, I think what they hear is the same thing that people hear when they're trying to buy a New York State lottery ticket. I mean, what sells those tickets? The phrase, quote, it could happen to you. And I think that's all people hear. If there's a risk, there's a risk. It doesn't matter what, what, the, what the chances are. What people don't understand is that a choice not to get a vaccine is not a risk free choice. It's a choice to take a different and more serious risk. And I think we have to be much better at explaining what those risks are. But, you know, we're very bad at assigning risk. I think we don't understand risk. I think the problem, too, is that we're talking about data that's collected on a population basis or in the context of a trial, which is not the real world setting in which people take drugs or get vaccines. And so um, what I've heard from parents is they want to be able to know for certain is my child the child that's the one in the exactly. million? And so that kind of data is not reassuring because it tells them nothing about their own child's personal risk. And, you know, you can see from some of those um, websites that you were just mentioning that people actually want 100% certainty that their kid's not going to have a, an adverse event from a vaccine. And it's it's obviously not a reasonable expectation of the science, but that's what they want. And, you know, trying to address that is really going to be an incredibly difficult conversation. No, but I it's was... also, I'm sorry, it's also because they, they have, they differentially view sort of the sin of omission versus the sin of commission. In other words, if I give a vaccine and there's a negative, and, and let's be honest, what are the real negative side effects of vaccines? Frankly, the fact that they contain, uh, uh, so say gelatin or egg proteins that could cause a hyper uh, an allergic reaction, hypersensitivity reaction. That's the real problem. But 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 I think and 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 that occurs in roughly one per two million vaccinees where you get a serious side effect. But um, I think the real problem is that, that that people perceive that if they do do something and it causes harm, that's very different than if they do nothing and harm is caused. Whereas I would argue that harm is harm, and you, you know you're just trying to put your child in the safest position possible. Which decision puts that child in the safest position possible? I think that's where a lot of this has to come, not from scientists, not from the government, um, because, as you said, there's that mistrust there, but from friends and neighbors. Um, and, and when, if the, if the enforcement, and I'm using enforcement in, in air quotes there, can be done at that local level, at the community level, where people start looking at their neighbors and you haven't vaccinated your children well you know what i'm sorry i don't want my kids playing with yours anymore and if this if this can happen at that level i think it will be much more successful i think part of the problem with these conversations is that you know in keeping with sort of a neoliberal small government idea about 
about how to deal with health, we kind of download the responsibility for these decisions onto the individual. And this is the level at which we've been talking for most of the show is, you know, how do parents make these decisions? They're making bad decisions. What's their risk perception like? But I think we need to take a step back and look at the social context here, the political context. And, you know, we ask parents to be these hypervigilant risk managers for their children's health. And, you know, the government's and public health does download a lot of responsibility onto individuals for health. We look at any kind of public health campaign. It's usually about lifestyle choice. Um, and and so to some extent, I think public health and, and neoliberal governments have created these hypervigilant risk-managing parents. And then you're asking them to just blindly trust that these are safe. And it goes against everything that they've been told by public health about how to be a good parent, how to be a good mother. Um, and so trying to put it into a broader social context and look at what is it that we're doing here um, with parenting in general, and then trying to play, place this decision within that context, it is a hard decision for parents who are told that they have to manage every microscopic risk that their kid might be exposed to. And that raises the question to which I think we don't know very well the answer, which is where do parents that are hesitant, where do they get their information from? Um, and as we heard, outbreaks are local community phenomena in general, unless people, as in the case of the Disney, travel all over the country. But what are the factors that determine whether people in a community um, decide as a community that a third of the people will get vaccines? Is it from the Internet? Is it over the fence? Is it moms talking in school? And if we don't know that at the local level, it's very hard to develop a national or state strategy to do better than we're doing. Well, now, are there other options beside uh, continually analyzing the way that we communicate about vaccinations to try and make it better? And besides potentially enforcing mandatory vaccinations, are there is there something else that we can do? Well, first of all, it is Paul again. I, I, I would I think we're going to learn a lot from California. It'll be interesting because there what we've done essentially is we've mandated vaccines for children unless they have a medical contraindication. It'll be if the result is that 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 more people get vaccinated, then I think we've learned something. And I think other states could reasonably follow that because vaccines are good because when people get them, they're less likely to get the disease and transmit them to others. And that's all good. So so let's. Let's see. I mean, whether mandated, mandating vaccines works. In the California law, there's actually a very interesting part which, was, uh, which has been snuck in on it, which, which is separate. And it's, it's the, the HPV vaccine. Uh, children in California over the age of 12 can now receive it on their own volition against their parents' wishes without parental uh, consent without actually the parent being informed of it. So I think that's going to be very interesting as well. Putting the right onto the, the child for that vaccine, uh, the child at, at age 12. And we can also see how, how that take up rate changes. Well, what about the idea that some parents aren't exactly against vaccinating their children? They just want to time the vaccination schedule differently. Is that something that could actually be implemented instead of mandatory vaccinations? 
Boy, I hope not, because because there, there's no advantage to that. The, the only thing that that will do is increase the period of time during which those children are susceptible to, to vaccine-preventable diseases with no benefit. I mean, if we were to, to do that, then what we would do is start down that very slippery anti-science slope of, of because parents are hesitant about vaccines, frankly, for the wrong reasons, assuming there's not a medical contraindication, we essentially accede to that because we're because we, you know, we want them, you know, to, to at least do something. And so we, you know, we, we delay vaccines. And then, so imagine that. I mean, imagine that we delay vaccines, you know, till age two. And we watch children get, say, a, a, an infection like streptococcus pneumonia, meningitis or pneumonia that they didn't have to get. What good have we done there? So I, I hope that's not a, a middle ground. I mean, I understand that Bob Sears has come up with his alternative vaccine schedule and that that is, is popular among a certain segment, but it certainly is misnamed. It should be called a delayed vaccine schedule. That's what it is. Also on that, as a, I'm not a scientist. I, I have not studied science since I was 16 years old. If I can't trust my doctor on the schedule of vaccination, what can I trust my doctor on? It's one of the most basic things that we don't have the knowledge as individuals to do this. It's, by, by setting this up, it's almost setting people up not to trust their medical providers, which worries me. I think going back to the, the broader question, though, if I would suggest there are two things that we need to do. Like we need to be better at in public health communicating um, and promoting a notion of the public good because we're not good at that right now. We do tend to focus on talking to individuals about what their responsibility is for their own personal health. We don't talk about kind of the kind of things we can do collectively to ensure the health of the community. And so when you're trying to have that conversation about vaccinations, it's really not in a context where people are receptive to hearing that because we keep just saying, this is your responsibility. This is your responsibility. Um, and we need to broaden the conversation. And I would imagine that in the U.S., this is even more important than it would be in Canada, um, where you, you do tend to see that people are, are less open to, to thinking that way and thinking about putting limits on our individual liberties for the common good. Um, and, and how can public health kind of change the channel somewhat and say, okay, look, you know, there are environmental, there are other things that are going on that are affecting your health that need to be addressed collectively. Uh, and the other thing is I really wanted to go back to this point about the importance of a dialogue between public health and government um, and this community um, or the communities that are, are vaccine hesitant or vaccine resistant, because as I see it right now, it's an incredibly polarized conversation that is just, they're talking past each other. And there's a real reluctance to engage with it for the reason that we just were talking about that, you know, giving them any kind of platform tends to have a negative effect. But I, I think that's not giving the rest of the public enough credit, you know, that to be able to sort out some of those arguments and, and evaluations. And if we continue to, to just sort of stonewall and just call this a lunatic fringe, you lose the opportunity to have a conversation. And what we know from the sociology of science and how it's taken up is that's often done in the context of a dialogue. And if that dialogue is only happening within a particular community that's anti-vaccine, it's going to be self-perpetuating. And we are completely out of time, so that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for us. We will link to the panelists on our website at Science for the People. Science for the People is supported by listeners like you.
While you're on the website, click the link to Patreon, where you can help keep the show on the air and ad-free, and get access to special show extras that you won't find anywhere else. And to our current Patreon donors, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. See you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.